You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. 2 Peter chapter 1. So two weeks ago, we talked about the gospel, and we wanted to define that because we are walking through uh, just a series of passages that are foundational to our church. And the, and the purpose of going through these uh, texts and, and these sermons is we um, were really looking out five to ten years as a church and, and really thinking about what kind of church do we want to become? What do we want to focus on? I think it's healthy for us to do that. Uh, back in July, you guys approved some new bylaws for us. And if you look at those bylaws, you'll find that all through those documents, you see God's Word over and over and over again because, well, that should be the foundation of what we do and how we do it. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the gospel out of 1 Corinthians 15, and we talked about that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when we communicate that message, it becomes good news, great news. It's news that can change your life. And then last week, we talked about, okay, if we have this great message and this good news, what do we what are we called to do as a church that's been called out from the world because of that good news? And we talked about how Jesus said that the fields are white with harvest, but what is needed most is that more workers will enter the field and enter the field with that message that we as a church must be willing to leave the 99 and go after the one. Well, today we're going to talk about, and really this sermon could have been, maybe should have been first, but what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the authority of God's Word and how that God's Word is trustworthy and how that we can be certain that what we're reading in these 66 books is, in fact, God's Word to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we get into your Word today and as we try to consider all that it says and how to apply that, Father, we recognize at the very beginning that you have spoken and Father, you have spoken to us. Father, it's not as though you spoke to those of old, and what you said to them have no relevance to us today. Father, nothing could be further from the truth. And Father, since you have spoken, our life's goal, our desire, is to know what you've said, because nothing is more important. Father, your word has changed my life. It brought me from darkness in the light. It made me brand new. And Father, I spent a lot of time looking for other things to try to fulfill that in my life. Only to find out that I was being lied to over and over and over again. So Father, may your truth shine brightly this morning. And Father, as we lift up the truth and as we lift up Jesus, that you would draw people to yourself. We ask all this in the powerful and strong name of Christ. Amen. Maybe when you were in school, um, maybe Sunday school or public school, your teacher played this game with you, and maybe you had 20, 25 students in class. I, I don't know what the actual name of the game is, so I just call it the gossip game. And the teacher would walk over to one student and whisper a story into that student's ear. And maybe two minutes, three minutes long, and it would have all kinds of varying details in it. And the, the task was is for that student to share that story with one other student and to try to get it right. And then, of course, that student shares it with another one, of course, in private, so the rest of the students didn't hear it. 
And by the time you get to the 25th student, that student stands up and then shares the story. And to shock and dismay of everyone in the room, the story doesn't sound anything like what the first person heard. As a matter of fact, we have the first person share the story and the last person share the story, and we find out that there's really no connection at all. The story has changed drastically from the first person to the 25th person. As I share my faith with people in this community, this comes up now more probably than it ever has. And what's coming up now is, is the idea that, well, I don't believe, and this is what the person will say to me, I don't believe that God's Word is God's Word. I believe that it's changed over years. I believe that, that this Bible, maybe it's got some good precepts in it, some good things to maybe learn about, but there's no way under the sun that that book could be God's Word to us and that it's some kind of, of, of authority in my life. Often what I'll hear is, is that over time, over years, the book has been changed over and over and over again. That what we read in the Gospels about Jesus has been changed and manipulated, and we don't even know if, if Jesus' life as portrayed in the Gospels is anything close to the life he portrayed. As a matter of fact, a lot of people are making the argument that, that the Gospels have really no connection to what Jesus' life was really like. That, that the Gospel writers changed the story to try to start a movement of religion. I'm hearing this more and more. And not only that, but there are entire denominations, entire evangelical denominations that are arguing and fighting right now about this very issue. They, they are about to split and, and break off into, Lord help us, more denominations because of God's Word and what it says. Specifically, the area right now that's being talked about more than any is the LGBTQ plus area, the, the idea of gender being multiple possibilities, or is it one of two possibilities? There, there are entire denominations right now that are arguing, and here's what's happening. There, there's one group of people that are saying, no, God's word speaks to this, and we should listen to that. And then there's another group of people that goes, no, God's word is irrelevant, and we need to make God's word relevant. So therefore, my opinions and my viewpoints are on the same level as what God's word says. As a matter of fact, my opinions overrule what God says in his word because his word is no longer relevant. We know it's been changed. It's been manipulated. It doesn't really say what we think it says. So therefore, get this, it's just another book. Sure, read it if you want to. But it's just a book of fables, of people's opinions, and nothing more. If this book, these 66 books, is nothing more than a book, then all of us in this room, we're in big trouble. Big trouble. Just like I said the first week, if the resurrection didn't happen, if the bodily resurrection did not occur as clearly revealed in God's Word that we are a people that are most miserable. We're in big trouble. I want to read for you what's in our bylaws, what's in our documents, our documents as a church, what we believe. I want to read this to you as clearly as I can, 
Anyway, again, when you look at those bylaws, you're going to see words, God's Word all through it, and that's by design because we as a church want to make sure that whether it be five years from now, ten years from now, a hundred years from now, if Hyde Park Baptist Church still exists and Jesus doesn't come back and call us out of this mess, that this church will be standing firmly planted upon the Word of God. Listen to what we put in our founding or our core documents. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to men. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. I love that sentence. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. Get this. All Scripture. Say with me. All Scripture. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And to that I say, amen. Now, let's talk about first second Peter. Look at second Peter. And let's take a look at what Peter has to say about this. And then I want to talk about this over here because you're like, what's all this stacks of paper doing up here? I had somebody come in this morning and say, oh wow, we got donuts. <laughs> he was, he was sorely disappointed. Uh, so yeah, we're going to give out a ream of paper to every guest today, so lucky you, right? No, that's not. I want to show you an illustration of just how accurate God's Word really is. But first, let's take a look at verse 19 in Second Peter. He says here, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, Peter says, he, he looks back specifically at the Old Testament, he says, what these guys wrote is not just their opinions. It's not as though they just wrote some stories and just kind of threw them together. It's, it's not as though even what Peter is writing at this particular moment, he's just throwing something haphazardly in the wind, hoping that it sticks. No, these men wrote with a purpose, and God was involved. Notice this, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Because you know why, right? Because the will of man produces something less than this. If, 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 if men were the only people involved in the writing of this book, then you have nothing more than what's sitting on the bestseller stand at Barnes & Noble. You have nothing more. It's just a book. But listen to what Peter says here. He says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see that word, those two English words there, carried along? There's one Greek word in the original, and, it, and it's the idea of, of God's breath or God's power moving these men along. So in other words, what we have in God's Word is a combination of God and men. Now, God is the author, just as I just read, but He utilized men like Paul and Matthew and Luke, broken people, to write down exactly what God intended us to have. Now, this begs the question, though, doesn't it? Well, didn't it change over time? I mean, look at all the different English translations we have. 
More than likely in this room right now, we've probably got anywhere from five to maybe even 10 English translations. If you open up your Bible app, you have access to maybe 10 or 15. Well, doesn't that alone say that, that the Bible's no different than the gossip game? That down through the years, one person says something to somebody else, and they wrote something down, and then somebody over here decided, you know what, I'm going to leave that part out, and I'm going to add this part in, and oh, I'm going to take this part out, and I'm going to put my opinion in. So by the time we get to our modern age, we've got a book that we can't even trust. Is that what happened? Absolutely not. And that's why I've got all this sitting up here, because I needed to give you a visual of where I'm going this morning. And and I'll tell you that this is going to sound a little bit more like a college lecture for a few minutes, but just stick with me because I know that God wanted me to say this to you this morning so that you have confidence in this book that you carry. So all down through time and space, there have been very important writers, philosophers that have impacted the world greatly. And what's interesting about these three Greek philosophers I'm going to talk about. You've probably never, maybe some of you have never heard their names. Maybe some of you have, have read about them in high school, and after you read about them, you've never thought about them again. For some of you in the medical community, in your training, some of these names are going to sound very familiar, and maybe you had to write a paper on them. But the thing about these first three Greek philosophers that I'm talking about is that nobody's really debating about the authenticity of what they wrote. Now, there are three questions, and well, there's more, but three big questions that people who are critical towards the Bible, who, who have as their goal to discredit it, this is three things that they ask. First of all, how long after the originals do we have the first copy? Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we don't have any original writings of the Bible. We don't have Matthew's original gospel. We don't have Paul's original letters. We don't have them. What we do have is copies of those originals. So if you are a critic and you're wanting to dispel a particular writing, maybe an ancient writing and maybe there's copies of it, well, the first thing you want to know is how long after the original did somebody write a copy? Because if there's a lot of time that has passed between the original and the first copy, that lends itself to a whole bunch of errors getting introduced. That makes sense, doesn't it? Well, the second question they ask is, well, how many copies do we actually have? Because if it was important, and it was copied many times, then obviously it's a very important document. So we have a lot of copies. That lends itself to its importance. And then the third question is if we do have a lot of copies, when we compare all of those copies written at different times, do they all agree? Now think about it this way. In that room with the gossip gang, we could talk to student number one, student number 10, student number 15, and student number 20, and we can bring them all together, and we can compare notes about the stories that they heard and the stories that they told. Well, these folks who are critical towards the Bible will say, well, let's take all of the copies, let's lay them all out, and if we begin to see large variations, well, then of course, humans got involved. So let's take our first example. This is a guy by the name of Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates, and when you talk about philosophy, when you talk about impact in philosophy, Socrates and Plato are two big, big players. And Plato, when he wrote, he talked about the origins of the universe, right? Where did it all come from? And he would work with that and wrestle with that. So today, if you are in philosophy or you're thinking about the origins of the cosmos, you're eventually going to make your way to the writings of Plato. Well, how many years passed between Plato's original writings and the first copy? Well, it was 1,200 years. 1,200. 
Now that would lend itself to the idea that maybe something got changed between the original and the copy. But see, the thing is, nobody's arguing about that. There may be some people out there who've studied it and maybe question it, but there's no great debate as to whether Plato's writings are actually Plato's writings. How many of them do we have? Well, as you can imagine, I'm holding my hand here. Each of these pieces of paper represent his copies. We have seven, only seven copies. And Plato is highly revered in the world of philosophy. Well, let's go to one of his students, Aristotle. Aristotle was a student of Plato. And Aristotle had a tremendous impact, especially on the science community. And Aristotle sat down and began to develop these different classifications for living organisms. Now, given his initial, original approach was a very small concise set of classifications, but the very classifications that we have today for plants and animals have their way all the way back to a guy named Aristotle. And Aristotle was a genius, very, very intelligent, very sharp individual. And not only did he have impact in the science community, but he had impact in art. He even founded zoology. Well, how many years passed between his original writings and the first copy? Well, 1,400 years, and you know how many we've got? 49. That's all we've got. Now again, Aristotle is not being debated at all whether his copies are accurate to what his originals were. Nobody's debating that. But yet, he has impacted every area of science, areas of zoology, and he's just taken as, well, true. Well, let me introduce you to the next guy. Now, you might have read some of this stuff in high school. A guy by the name of Homer, and he wrote two big epic words. And if you had to read either the Odyssey or the Iliad in high school, you thought you were going to die before you got through that, right? You were looking for cliff notes, videos, movies, anything you could watch to not have to read this poetry. The Iliad in particular is a long, very long, did I say long? Yes, very long, epic poem about the Trojan Wars. And the Iliad is held in high regard. If you talk to people in academia, they will tell you that, that Homer's writings, both in the Odyssey and the Iliad, are, are some of the, the best writings you can ever read. And I've read parts. I haven't read both of them, maybe one day. But the Iliad in particular, beautiful writing. Well, his writing reveals quite a bit about not only Greek mythology, but get this. He reveals a whole lot about warfare in that poetry. And did you know that our methods of warfare to this day have been influenced by Homer's writings. Now, how long, how many years passed from Homer's writings to the copies? Well, get this, only 500 years, so much less than the other two Greek philosophers. How many copies do we have of his original work? 643. It's pretty good. Well, I think you know where I'm going next. Let's talk about the Greek New Testament. Now, the Bible has three predominant languages that it was written in. Well, you have today, unless you're reading the original language, which go you if you are, uh, three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, New Testament, Greek, okay? So we have three languages. We have, now get this, in New Testament Greek, in the Greek language, get this, we have almost 6,000 copies. 6,000 copies of those original, what we call autographs. How many years passed between when Paul actually wrote and we have the first copy? 
Less than 100 years, probably about 90 years. That's how, in other words, when the first writing was done, which we think is probably the book of Galatia, the letter to the church at Galatians, there were people still living when those copies were being made. There were people still living who saw Jesus resurrected, more than likely. When we start seeing those copies, there's a very, very short period of time. The, the, less, the least amount we've got over here with these Greek philosophers is 500 years, ranging up to 1,400 years, and their writings are accepted at face value. The New Testament has 5,600, almost 6,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. But get this, there's also another 19,000 copies I think that's right. Yeah, 19,000 copies in Syriac, Coptic, Aramaic, and Latin. So we have all these other copies. So get this. We have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Now I'm getting ready to blow your mind. So less, less than 90 years, about 90 to 100 years, between the originals and the copies, and the first copies. So how accurate? So let's take all 24,000 of the copies and let's lay them out. And trust me when I tell you, there have been people that hate the church, hate Jesus Christ, hate Christianity, who've looked over these copies for years and years. It's still happening today. And here's what they're doing. They're taking all of these copies and they're laying them out. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for them to contradict one another. They're looking to say, okay, some later copies, the authors changed them. That's what they're looking for. Well, I'm getting ready to blow your mind. 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Do you know how accurate they are when you look at all of them across from one another? You know how accurate they are at saying the same thing? 99.5%. Folks, there's not another set of ancient documents on the face of the earth that has more evidence for its authenticity than the New Testament that you hold in your hands right now. No, people didn't interject their own stuff into it. No, all down through those years, people were staying true to the messages that they received. That 5% or that 0.5, I know what you're saying. Oh, well, what about that 0.5? Well, you skeptic, you, let's talk about that for just a moment. If I haven't proven it yet, that 0.5, you know what the variation is in the 0.5%? A little bit of word variations. For example, in one copy, it may say Jesus Christ, and the other copy, it says Christ Jesus. Not one single doctrine that the church stands upon is changed. Not one central tenet of our faith, Jesus being God and flesh, Jesus being the head of the church, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, no doctrine of the Christian faith changed at all in all those thousands of years of copy after copy after copy, then translation after translation after translation. And here we stand today, folks, and I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt, and I've given my life to study both Old and New Testament, that I can stand upon the authority of God's Word, and I can pillow my head at night knowing that whatever comes tomorrow, this is truth. I don't have to worry about it. And boy, do I sleep good at night knowing that. So who's the author? Well, God. What about men? Well, men. God did this miraculous thing. He carried along these men to write down what he wanted them to write down. Now, I've talked more about the New Testament than the Old, but trust me when I tell you, you can do the same investigation with the Old Testament, you're going to come to the same conclusion. So if the church is going to build itself upon something, of course, Jesus Christ. 
But listen, if we're in limbo about the truth of God's word, how do we know that the Jesus we're following is the Jesus of the New Testament? There's where the attack comes, folks. Listen, if they can get us doubting the authenticity of God's word, then everything's in play. And the only thing that's left is human opinion at that point. That's where the fights are happening now among many denominations is human opinion versus the truth of God's word. What are we going to base our church and our ministry and our future on? Well, I can tell you where we're going. We're sticking with the word. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is, a, is an incredible psalm. If you've read through the Bible in a year and you got to Psalm 119, you kept thinking, man, when am I going to get to the end of this? It's the longest psalm. But what's unique about this psalm is how it's divided up. And maybe you've, you've looked at this and you saw some interesting headings over the, each of the uh, sections. You're wondering, what is this all about? Here's what I'm thinking on, on Psalm 119 and what I've kind of come to conclusion on. We don't know who the author is. Some say David. Some say it was someone after the exile when the nation was being brought back together. I don't know. I don't know who wrote it. But here's what I think. I think, I think the author was writing with this in mind. I think it's a journal. I think what we're reading in Psalm 119 is somebody's personal journal where they set out to talk about and to worship God for the truth and the beauty of his word. You have 176 verses in this psalm, and 171 of those 176 verses mention scripture in some various ways. Precepts, law, word, commands. 171 times this person who wrote this psalm said this about God's word. But not only that, Psalm 119 is divided up into 22 sections or discourses. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So what this author did is, is to, do, if he, to make it even more amazing and beautiful, he takes the Hebrew alphabet and he divides up all of his writings and he says, okay, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and he does a set of passages. And every one of those passages start with the same letter in the Hebrew language, the very one that he's divided up. So we have 22 discourses. Each of those discourses begin with the letter, one particular letter of the Hebrew language, and that's listed out in your Bible at the beginning of each of these discourses. But what I think we have here is someone's personal journal where they are worshiping God for the beauty of his word. So let's pick it up in verse 89. He says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is we've now begun to kind of lay a groundwork that, that the Bible is trustworthy. There's no other book like it. So if that's true, we begin to accept that as true, then, then what does that mean in how I live my life? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us about that. I mean, there's numerous places that we can look at. All through the Bible, the writers and through the inspiration of God prescribes a lifestyle, prescribes how we should live. Well, get this. The author says, your word is firmly fixed. So the first thing, if you write these things down, the first thing I want you to write down is his word is the final word. His word is the final word. What do I mean by that? Well, in these debates and in these conversations that I'm having with people, inevitably this kind of statement comes up, and maybe you've made this statement, and if you have, and this is what you believe, I'm glad you're here today. I've had people say to me, well, well pastor, that's your truth. 
But it's not my truth. My truth is this. And their truth may completely contradict my truth, so what do we do? We're at a standstill. Well, what this means is, is that you can have your own idea of truth, but it doesn't correspond to reality, but that's okay, it's your truth, right? Does that work? Well, if it does, let me, let me challenge you to do this. I think I've shared this with you before, and I've actually done this. The next time you're having lunch with that person who says your truth versus my truth, if they're wearing a nice watch or if they've got the nicest iPhone laying out on the table, just ask them to see their iPhone, their nice new iPhone. Sure, and they hand you the iPhone. Wow, this is a nice phone. After you look at it for a little bit, just stick it in your pocket. And just let the conference, just let things go. Eventually, it's going to get really awkward because the person's going to go, hey, um, when are you going to give me my phone back? I did this with a guy one time with a really nice watch. I just took his watch and put it on. Didn't say another word about it. Because he believed, he believed that truth was relative. He believed that truth could be whatever he wanted it to be and whatever I wanted it to be, and we didn't have to agree on what truth was. So eventually this person is going to say, hey, what would you do with my phone? What makes you think it's your phone? I mean, we just said that, you just said that truth is relative, which means truth can be what I want it to be. So I just decided that I like your phone better than mine. So as soon as I get done here, I'm going to go to the, the phone place. I'm going to switch to my, man, I really appreciate that. That's awesome, isn't it? And then the guy on the other side of the table says, no, 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 you're stealing my watch. You're still, that would be stealing. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that preclude that there's some kind of absolute truth? What, what if I say that I like your phone better and that's my truth? Too bad for you if it's your truth that it belongs to you. You see where I'm going here. There is no way you can live your life. There is no way you can live your life with a relative truth. It can't work. Ever. I guarantee you at some point you're going to say, this is true. Well, when you do, what if that contradicts where I'm at? See, that's the problem. His word is the final word. Notice what he says. O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, which means my opinion doesn't matter. My feelings, I know this hurts. I know this even hurts to hear it, but let me, let me just say it. How you feel about truth doesn't matter. God's truth is firmly fixed, and not only is it firmly fixed in heaven, look, it's established on earth. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. You see, here's the thing. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Had a conversation not long ago where someone said to me, Pastor, I believe there are more than just two genders. Now, I don't know if they believe in the 30 or 40 or 50, wherever we are today, but, but, but they said there is more than just male and female. And I said, well, look, you can believe that if you want to. We live in a free country. If you want to believe that or you want to. But guess what? I, I hold a different viewpoint. Let me tell you what it is. I believe there are two possibilities, biologically male, biologically female. I have thousands of years of history to back that up. Men do not have babies. Amen, and I offended that person. Didn't mean to. And again, I said, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but here's the facts, folks. The reality is, there is absolute truth. Truth can't be relative. And I believe that God's word is that truth, and I believe it's the only truth that matters. God has spoken, and it is fixed. Your feelings are not going to change it. Your opinions are not going to change it. 
Your, your anger is not going to change it. One day you're going to stand before a holy God, and neither your feelings or your opinions or your anger is going to matter one iota in that moment. And God is going to speak, and that's all that's going to matter. And if you're not right with Christ, if you're not right with him, if you're not right reconciled to the creator through what his Jesus, his son did on your behalf, he will cast you out, and there's not a bit of arguing that's going to change it. Why do I know that? Because he tells me that in his word. It's fixed. Notice this. He says that it's fixed in the heavens, and his faithfulness is on display to the generations. He's established the earth, and it stands fast, and nothing you're going to do is going to change that. Notice this. Not only is his word the final word, but everything in creation is less than him. Everything in creation is less than him. He says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. Whoever wrote this recognized something that we all need to recognize. And the reality is, is no matter how I feel about God, no matter how you feel about God, whether you, whether you accept that he's real or not, the reason your heart is beating in your chest right now, the reason you're breathing in oxygen right now is not because you got up today and decided you're going to live another day. You had no power in that. You had no decision in that. The fact that you're alive right now, you had no choice in that, you had no belief in that. Now, can you take your own life? Yes. And sadly, sadly, we have an epidemic of that happening right now. But you, when you got up today, you didn't decide today, well, hey, I'm going I'm to live today. That's out of your control. The psalmist says, whether you are atheist or whether you're not, your existence is based on a holy God who's spoken. Your life is in his hands whether you accept him or not. Your life is in his palm, in his hand. Your next breath is in his hand whether you ever acknowledge him or not, whether you ever love him or not. But make no mistake about it, there's going to be a day where you're going to breathe your last, where God's going to say, it's done, it's over. Your days have been measured out. And when you come to that last day, there's not a doctor on this planet that will change it. And then you're going to have to face this holy God that you've been denying your holy life, and your entire life, your whole life, and you're going to stand before him, and your opinions will not matter. The psalmist says, all things are his servants. So his word is the final word. Everything in creation is less than him. Everything in creation is subject to him. Everything in creation, whether we acknowledge it or not, is under his power and under his control. Third, true life is found in his words. Look at this. He says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Oh, my goodness. We could park here for just a little while. Let me give you a little testimony here. I look back across my life. I turned 50 in February. I came to faith in Christ when I was 16. In my mind, that seems like ages, aeons ago. But I can look down across my life, and I can see all the times that God stepped in. There's times that God stepped in and said, don't go down this path. I wanted to. I thought that that was what I needed to do. I thought that was the path I needed to go. And God said no. And because at times I would spend time in his word and I had people teaching me and training me in the word that I could not go down that path. And now I look back and think if I had went down that path, it would have been an absolute disaster. 
How many of you can give a testimony of the fact that God has pulled you back from the precipice, that God has pulled you out of the pit, that God has stopped you from stepping into that bear trap? How many of you can raise your hand and say, God has done that? Look around, folks. Skeptics, look around. The Word has changed people's lives. Those precepts, those laws that I thought were just so constrictive. Oh, I just thought, oh, there's times in my life I just, oh, God, you're just, you're just a mean old guy up in heaven. You don't want me to have any fun. And God was saying, no, I'm trying to protect you from your own foolishness. I'm trying to prevent you from sticking your foot in a trap. If you'll just listen to me, you'll find life. The psalmist says, you've given me life by his words. God, your words has given me life and peace. Everyone on this planet has a group of questions they're asking, and they're trying to find answers everywhere in the world. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where do I go when I die? Why is the cosmos here? Why is the, why is the cosmos as big as it is when we can't even see 99% of it? What's my purpose in this world? Guess where we find answers? He says, the true life is found in him. It reveals the world's greatest problem. What is that? You're going to think I'm simple-minded here, and that's okay. But let me tell you what the world's problems are. You're thinking I'm going to throw politics out. You're thinking I'm going to talk about the pandemic. Let me tell you what the world's problem is. Sin. And it started all the way back in a garden, a literal garden. And the world has been cast into darkness and evil ever since. And not only are we born into sin, but we choose to sin. That's, that's the problem. And guess what? There's an antidote to that problem. That's what Jesus came to fix, to provide a rescue. The psalmist says that he's found true life in his words. But notice what else he says. Go on down to verse 98. He says, pick up 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. God's word for the psalmist, he says that God's word provides wisdom. So not only his word, the final word, creation is less than him. True life is found in his words. But to get this, we get wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Boy, we've got some wise people in this, in this church. I don't mean wise cracks. we got some of those. <laughs> but we've got some really wise people that I call up on a regular basis to talk to and to say, hey, I need some guidance here. You know what wisdom is, true wisdom? Someone who's gotten a lot of knowledge has lived some life experiences, and now they've taken that knowledge and they're living it out. Wisdom is knowledge applied correctly. Wisdom is the application of knowledge in the right way. And how do we get it right? Well, by life experiences. Sometimes you get things wrong and you learn from it, or at least we hope we will learn from them. So wisdom is the process of applying knowledge in the correct way. The psalmist says here, that by being God's word, it has made him wiser. It has not just given him knowledge, but it's given him wisdom. In other words, he's trying to live out the precepts that he finds in God's word. And when we do, we learn some things, don't we? We learn things about ourselves. We learn things about the world. We learn things about God himself. The psalmist says that it provides wisdom. How many of you need some clarity right now? How many of you need some clarity in a big decision you've got to make or a conversation you've got to have? Well, where are you looking to find that kind of knowledge? Is Netflix going to provide that for you? 
Is the latest bestseller from the latest guru or whoever that's on the bestseller, is he going to be able to provide that for you? Or the one who created you, who knows every cell of your being, who knows the very heart beating in your chest, who knows your motivations, knows what you're thinking about, knows your situation. Who's going to be in the best position to speak to whatever problem you're needing clarity on? Makes sense, doesn't it? Wisdom, clarity from God's Word. Get this, verse 101. He says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. It kind of goes back to the idea that there's all kinds of problems coming at us, all kinds of temptations coming at us, and how do we navigate all that? Parents, how do we, how do we navigate having our kids grow up in Christ and make the right choices? How do we help them stay away from the pitfalls that maybe you fell into? Guess where we go? We go to God's Word. But here's the thing, parents. Is that where we're going? Is God's Word a centerpiece of our homes? Are we talking about it? Are we sitting around the dinner table? Say, hey, I read in God's Word this morning in the Gospel of John about Jesus doing this. And it just blew my mind. What do y'all think about this? Are we talking about God's Word in our houses? Or are we talking more about everything else under the sun that has no ability to change your life from the inside out. I think it's a conversation we need to start having. It provides wisdom and clarity. And then finally, not only, did, let me go back over him. His word is the final word. Everything in creation is less than him. True life is found in his words. Provides wisdom and clarity to life's hardest questions. Protects us from our own foolishness. And then finally, produces spiritual food that is sweet. Look at this, verse 103. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. You, as an individual, there's two parts, at least two parts, three parts, depending on your theological uh, persuasion. What I mean by this is, is your flesh. You got to feed your flesh, right? That's why when this brother came in this morning, he saw donuts up here. It's because he was hungry. He saw donuts and reams of paper. You got to feed your flesh, right? You got you to water and food and take care of it. You're getting hungry now. You're thinking, wow, it's 11.43. He's got to be landing a plane soon. Oh, by the way, <laughs> by the way, um, just as a little side note, I know I'm going to lose all of you right here at this moment. When I'm making a race, I'm getting ready to lose you all. Next Sunday in the Rock Cafe, Ray Britt is making grits again. <laughs> All right, so you folks that are amen in that morning, you have me, now we got a problem. Don't tell, don't tell Ray Britt. <laughs> but feeding our flesh is something we have to do. Got to drink water, got to eat food. But did you ever think about what you're feeding your soul and your spirit? Did you ever think about what you're feeding that real you? And I wonder if we're not eating from a buffet or drinking from a stream that's poisoned. I wonder if we're not walking down a buffet where there's poison, rat poison laid all out. We're just, give me more of that. Give me an extra helping. You know what I'm talking about, right? The world, what the world's telling you is true. And, and, and we're feasting on the world's poison while starving to death from his truth. 
And we're wondering why we can't figure out what this life is all about. We can't, we can't figure out why it is I'm frozen in fear. Uh, we can't figure out why we're worried to death. We can't figure out why every time we turn on the news, we feel like we're about to throw up. And it's keeping you up at night. In the middle of the night, you're waking up and you're thinking about something happening on the other side of the globe because of something you read on the internet. Let me tell you why that is. You're consuming poison. You're consuming something that is that is completely bringing upheaval in your life. It ended about time we learn about our Creator and what He's had to say about things, about our life, and about what life is, about why we're here, the purpose in which we're here. The psalmist says to get into His Word is like eating honey on a biscuit. Now, I threw the biscuit part in. Okay, I threw that part in. But he said consuming God's Word is like eating honey. Sweet. Does that mean it's easy? No. There'll be times when you get into God's word that it brings conviction, but that's still sweet because there's changes that he's bringing into your life. 504 years ago today, everyone else is celebrating Halloween, but let me tell you what October 31st means to me. It's not Halloween. It's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. 504 years ago, he got fed up with what was happening in the Catholic Church. He got fed up with the idea of the Pope being the only one who could purvey the truth or share the truth that, that nobody else could have access to. And what he said was, was the truth. He, he got tired of, the, of how money was being handled and how the poor was being trampled. And finally, he gets to a place where he's just, he's just fed up with it. So he's got... He puts this down, he writes it down, and we call it the 95 Theses. It's basically his 95 grievances towards how the church had departed from the truth of Scripture. And he takes those 95 grievances and he goes down to the church, the Wittenberg Castle Church, and, and historians tell us there's debate about this, but he nails it to the door to say, here's where I'm standing, and I'm not moving from here. Now, as time goes on, Martin Luther has a bounty put on his head. They're going to kill him because he's saying things that the church of the day disagreed with. But all that Martin Luther was saying is exactly what Scripture was saying. And by the way, when you stand upon truth, you're going to come at a crossways with culture every time. Eventually, Martin Luther comes up with five pillars. Five pillars. that He gets out of God's Word. And guess where he he kind of starts. He starts with this statement, sola scriptura. What does that mean? It means on Scripture alone, not opinions of humanity, but upon God's Word alone should the church be built, should the church function, should we be on mission. It's got to be tied to the authority of God's Word. I, if you've been to Starting Point, you've heard me say this, and I kind of laugh about it. The last thing you want for Hyde Park Baptist Church is for me to be your authority. Can I just tell you that's going to be a train wreck of all train wrecks? I'm not your authority. I'm here to serve. But this book, this, this is our authority. This is how we do ministry. This is what Martin Luther was saying. He said that Scripture is the authority. And he divided it up three ways, and I'm going to close with this. He says, first of all, Scripture is the supreme authority over the church. All human leaders are fallible, which means they make mistakes. They get it wrong. They get greedy. They get selfish. All human leaders, 
who are not grounded in God's word, and even those who are still get it wrong. So what Martin was saying, what Luther was saying is, is that the church must be grounded upon something other than human opinion. If all we've got is human opinion, we are in big trouble. Secondly, Scripture is sufficient. We have all that we need right here. Whatever I'm dealing with in life, whatever's blown up in my household, whatever's going on with my calling, this church, I can find the answers right here. It's sufficient, all sufficient. And then third, Scripture is clear. Any person of any level of, of education can read it and have their life changed by it. We've got people all over the world who are being changed by God's Word, hearing it taught, and can't read a word of it. If you have a fifth grade education, we can get into the Gospel of John, and we can walk through it, you can understand it, and it'll change your life. These guys over here, they raise some pretty cool things. But these guys over here won't change your life. Those books that you're reading, those novel romances and all that other stuff, and you're seeing yourself lost in this make-believe world, that's never going to change your life. Reading podcasts and watching the news and reading your Facebook feed, it's not going to change your life. But I'll tell you something that will. God's Word. There's nothing else like it in the world. Why would we run anywhere else to answer those big life questions than to his word. Father in heaven, your word is beautiful and it is sweet like honey, but Father, there's something that gets in the way and it's our will, our desires, our, well, our preconceived ideas about what our life should be about. Far too often the culture is influencing us more than we're influencing the culture. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes, Father, if it's because we're not really certain that your word is your word. Father, if your word is true and it is, then it should be more important to us than just on Sunday. If your word is true and it is, then for the big life questions that this congregation and those watching online this morning, for those big life questions that they have, we shouldn't be running anywhere else but to it. Father, you have spoken, and there are no greater words ever spoken than the words we have in these 66 books. Father, I know there are people here this morning that are still skeptical. There are people here this morning that are not even sure that you exist. And Father, I'm deeply grateful that they gave me the opportunity this morning to speak these words. But Father, these words are far more than just words. So draw the skeptic. Draw the one, Father, who's surrendered their life to you. And your word is no more important to them than last week's newspaper. Father, in this moment of time, your word demands a response. We can reject it, or we can accept it. So, Father, have your will and your way in this moment. We ask it in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.